You're listening to The Dice Men Cometh, broadcast live to air on Edge Radio 99.3 FM and proudly sponsored by LFG Australia. The Dice Men Cometh! Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good anything to anybody out there that's listening whenever you may be listening. This is Leon from The Dice Men Cometh, the Southern Hemisphere's longest-running board game podcast. But we don't just talk board games, we talk card games, role-playing games, anything you can do on a t- gaming table. And now you might even be out to go out into the real world and do that with friends. The last couple of episodes, I have ventured forth all the way across the pond to the Northern Hemisphere to some of my good friends over there in the Americas. But today, just for a laugh, I thought we'd come back and have some Australians. So we're going to have an Australian guest and I'm going to be joined by my Australian co-host who left me in the lurch... This is an edit point. Who left me in the lurch last episode and that is mr garth i did leave you in the lurch last episode yeah because you know i figured that you guys could just do it without me and i can't even remember where i was oh no i was in sydney i was in yes. sydney on the very first plane allowed out of tasmania since march so that was exciting um yes. but yes leon thank you very much for having your regular co-host and lurch uh with you tonight we are very lucky and very honored to have someone live from their lounge room or bedroom or some kind of room uh, in New South Wales, in Sydney. Uh, and that, of course, is Tina Hansen. Hello, Tina. How are you? Hi, Garth. Hi, Leon. I'm good, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. So we are going to get straight into dissecting Tina Hansen. I hope you don't mind, Tina. That's just how we roll now. Sure. <laughs> uh, I mean... Excellent. So that is that is consent now. So that's fine. Now, let's start for the uninitiated and you can tell us who and what a Tina Hansen is. Well, a Tina Hansen. So most people on Facebook know me as the person who runs the Australian Board Game Geeks Facebook group. Uh, Most people in Sydney know me as the person who runs Sydney Tabletop Games Meetup Group which is one of the largest meetup groups in Sydney. Some people might know me as Dice Goblin Extraordinaire (laughs) or their illustrious Dice Dealer. Some people have even done photoshops to that effect. It's pretty fun. Um, And some people might know me as Behold Games, um, an online Australian retailer. Some other people, just to add on to the top of that, might know me for the 18xx Sydney mini convention for uh, train games and some people might know me for the board game cruise which I believe is how we actually met. (laughs) Absolutely we did meet that way via I kind of remember how it was but yes there we go yes good old Norkel but that's um that's a few years ago and obviously it's not happening this year which is really really disappointing but hopefully that money comes back to you nice and soon because we haven't got any. Yeah it um (laughs) There, there were there were a few tense months there where people were asking me for updates, wasn't getting any. It looks like things are progressing. So I got a word today that I'm getting my refund, which I'm hoping means that everyone else's will follow. Absolutely. Well, look, let's let's talk about some other stuff first of all. And probably the the one that I'm personally most interested in is these these groups and these meetups that you're you're holding in and around Sydney, where you are attempting to get a whole bunch of gamers in the one place at the one time and play a whole bunch of games and have fun? Like, seriously? 
I mean, it can be varying levels of fun for me, <laughs> but I like to think it's fun for everyone who attends. So the meetup group that I run, Sydney Tabletop Games, um, has been running since 2015. COVID had brought its first holiday in five years. That wow. was more than two weeks of me going overseas um, or running the board game cruise. So I kind of have to admit I enjoyed the time off, <laughs> but I'm, I'm getting back into it now. Pre-COVID, I was getting between 45 and 65 attendees every week. Um, I hired a private function space to host it out of. Um, regularly would get mid to heavyweight euros to the table to the group, which was, I think, a niche that wasn't really served in Sydney much at the time when I started the group, uh, which I think helped drove its success. Yeah. And controversially, I have quite a few strict rules, one of them <laughs> which tends which tends to um, get people a little bit like every time I post saying, no social deduction games allowed, people go, but, but why? They, well, they yeah, got well, very... Leon, do you want to ask a question? I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, I was doing a little bit of last minute research on my phone and then you said that and you probably just saw me in, in our Zoom window. I did pop my head up and go, but but but, but why? They're, they're the funnest of the thing. I know there, there can be some yelling uh, and that's why people should go in the corner and respect other people's personal spaces. But but but, but, but why? They're fun. Um, look, they are fun at... And, and they can be fun with the right people. I just don't think they're always necessarily fun at a social group with strangers um, yes. because I think really what you get the most out of it, social deduction games, is when you know the people. But the main reason I started the group, and that was a founding rule for the group, was because at Sydney at the time in 2015, there were a few players, like two or three, uh, that were quite toxic and all they did was play social deduction games. I saw someone brought to tears Playing, like a new person she, wow. she'd just come to the group for the first time she sat there crying because that she was being yelled at about doing everything wrong and you know they that can be fun if it's your friends I don't think that's fun with strangers who don't know the line with each other that that is very true you are 100 mm. percent correct and yeah when we talk about social deduction games it's because we're all very good close friends who love to yell each other because we know that that's the whole point of the game and when we used to run our big werewolf nights down here and have you know 70 80 100 people in my opening spiel when i got everyone together that would be the first thing i'd say i'd say that this is just a game but we're here to yell each other and have fun and it, you're going to be doing it to strangers but to remember that it's just a game. But as you said, if you've got toxic people involved and sadly, yeah, because they're generally toxic, they don't know what to play, when to play and when to quit, that you mm. are probably, you are correct. So fine, I will give you that. Back to your heavy euros, continue. <laughs> um, and, and to be honest, if anyone, I do allow some, I've softened over the years, um, <laughs> games that involve a little bit more listening to other players in order to do the social deduction so insider where words um code names has always been allowed the message um, and i can't think of others at this time but generally the ones that are based around word puzzles as well are almost all allowed um yeah. dark moon is allowed okay. um, and that's that Battlestar galactica variant so those mm -hmm. those type of ones with a game element to it where you it's not just one person yelling over everyone else to convince them um, you know, it's very similar to Among Us when you get killed and people yes. are trying to work out if you're the killer. Exactly. So those types of games, less so, because there's not really a lot of, um, a lot of it comes off knowing how other players play. But the, the I find that the, 
I have put it to a vote previously and it was upheld that I allow some, but not all. Um, and yeah. I think it's also because in the spaces we get in with 60 people and Sydney is smaller venues, I'm sure, than Tasmania has, <laughs> we we can sometimes get, it can get very noisy and it's not pleasant for everyone. Um, so if the social gamers are there yelling at each other, they're getting told to be quiet, they don't like that. The Euro gamers are getting annoyed because they can't hear each other, they don't like that. It's not fun for anyone. And in Sydney, we have the benefit of having a social deduction convention dedicated to social deduction games. Yeah. We have a dedicated um, Blood on the Clock Tower meetup. We have a dedicated Werewolf meetup. We have um, many other meetup groups where you can play it. And if people are interested in those, I will actually refer them on to other groups. Um, to say, look, go play, have fun. Yeah, there's a time and a place for everything. Like, for instance, 99% of social deduction games you could play at the pub quite easily. And, you know, all other type of heavy Euro games, you're obviously not going to take into a crowded pub and play, but a lot of pubs do have, like, you know, back rooms you can kind of hire out type things to put in there. So, again, time and a place for everything. So I'm sure you probably made the right choice, even if it sounds a bit weird to my ears. But, you know, <laughs> now that you've, now you've actually put in that logic and made sense, then I guess that it's fine. Garth, continue with your interview. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, well, I'm just sitting back and letting people talk. It's fantastic. So, look, let's let's talk about that because most of us who are, you know, at any way, shape or form involved in board games go to conventions, go and we might have our regular meetups with people in our homes and we might even have regular meetups in, in public spaces, pubs, cafes, you know, whatever it might be. And most of the time it's pretty chilled out. We just sort of send some messages to our mates and go, hey, I'm going to be here in a, a couple of days' time. Just turn up and they do. And it's... It's that easy, isn't it? Um, it can be, but sometimes you might find that, and, and this is a circumstance I found myself in, when I started going to meetup groups, public meetups myself, um, I had a regular group of friends that I gamed with. We drifted apart in terms of the gaming taste we had. <laughs> um, there might have been a bit of risk legacy involved. Um, <laughs> I was about to say, pandemic legacy, anybody? <laughs> uh, no, pandemic legacy has brought some of my friends closer um, and I'm about to start season zero with some friends. But no, the the risk legacy, um, because if you, every time you win, you just get more and more powerful and it's impossible to stop you. And it became very political because two of them lived together, the other two, like the and one of them was a partner with someone else. So there was a lot of interpersonal play to it. And I was like, oh, I just want to have fun and play games. Yeah. Um, so I started going to public meetups and I went to every meetup group I could find. Um, so I got to really see the, the a lot of different ways that public meetups will run from having um, a very dedicated host who would help you find groups to having no host who uh, you'd walk in and you'd be like, where are the gamers? I only see magic. Um, <laughs> and to groups that are, you know, in restaurants. So there was one that used to be in a Thai restaurant in Newtown um, on the upper floor. And there's some where they were in pubs, some that were in game shops. So mine initially started up in a game shop. Um, and I actually started it as a direct reaction to the social deduction thing. Because at the time, Avalon and Werewolf were being played. Two Rooms and a Boom was taking over, and that would take the entire group because it it's such a big game. And I, I really personally enjoy Two Rooms and a Boom. Yeah, so I got to see a lot of different types of games and different organisational types. And I went 
instead of trying to change the group I was a part of, I decided to start my own group the way I wanted a group to be run. And out of that, I started Sydney Tabletop Games, where I was previously a part of another fairly large Sydney group, but there were just, you know, there's problematic people, the problematic games, and there were problems with venues as well that came up as um, over time. So I started Sydney Tabletop Games and I had initially started it as a heavy Euro gamer only group. <laughs> and then I start and then I was like, well, this actually doesn't help. It doesn't get new people to play these games Correct. Um, that I love playing. And, and my interpretation of what a heavy Euro was back then, it was not a heavy Euro. It's probably mid, <laughs> mid to heavy weight. But I was coming from a group where you'd get beginners every week and the same people were getting stuck teaching every week and they were getting burnt out and exhausted. Now, I have a question before I was so rudely cut off by my crappy Tasmanian internet. We were talking there about Euro games and having people in a convention setting or people in a gaming group setting. What is a good heavy introductory Euro game to get people involved? Because obviously you're not throwing someone straight into the deep end of a heavy Euro. You're going to have them coming in from into the hobby through an introductory game, have them do a mid-weight Euro, something on the lines of, well, these days we'll probably be uh, terraforming Mars, I guess Wingspan is probably lighter, but kind of medium-ish. There's decisions to be made. But what would be the introductory heavy Euro, you would say, that it would get somebody, somebody's walked in and gone, I'm interested in playing a heavy Euro game. What do you reckon you'd chuck on the table for them? I'd probably ask them first um, how they feel about economic games. Yep. And if they like an economic game, that's kind of where I have my personal likes. So I can make much better recommendations there. Obviously, I would go, well, if you like economic games and you want to try something heavy, do you understand the stock market? <laughs> um, and then I would go, do you like trains? And I would go, here's an 18xx game wow. called 18 Chesapeake. <laughs> that is a entry-level 18xx game. It's not too nasty. You can still go bankrupt, but it's not too nasty. Um, and if it was, if they liked um, economic games but weren't necessarily a fan of um, anything too cutthroat, I'd actually, and this is probably controversial, I'd steer them away from Food Chain Magnet. I would say yes. Food Chain Magnet is a heavy game, but it's a little bit cutthroat. And I think if you have more experience playing it, you're a better player at it, um, which is not the type of game I like to give to people who are taking that next step. I would see if they like worker placement, um, I might suggest on Mars, um, you know, go straight for the Lacerdas. Um, <laughs> see, I would, Mars, I would think as far as a Lacerda goes, the escape plan would probably be the introductory heavy Euro because it, yeah. it, it's the lightest of his games, I reckon, in the, in the last half a dozen years at least, and it's half the time uh, time limit as well. Yeah, so if they wanted a shorter game, I'd probably go for Escape Plan. But in terms of a longer, meatier game, I feel like On Mars has got my trifecta of its thematic. The rules make sense in, in terms of the thing, which tends to be the case with Lacerda's. Yeah. And it's it's not overly um, complicated in terms of following actions, which Escape Plan has. Right. So I would have assumed... It's kind of a boring answer because it is considered normally in the conversation of best Euro games ever. Something like La Havre would be the way to go. But the thing is, La Havre's not necessarily heavy. It just takes like three hours. It is pretty much a medium weight game, but it can take quite a long time. But I would argue that it's on the heavier side of a Euro, that's for sure. To my shame, I've never played it. <laughs> 
I'd never played it as well until I got to a convention and I said to somebody that had it, I said, you guys are playing that over the weekend. Can I please play it? These type of games aren't my thing. I'm not going to buy them and have them in my collection at home, um, but I want to play it. I then played it. I then bought it. So that's, <laughs> but that's just the kind of person I am. Anyway, that was my little interlude there. Back to the interview. Garth, continue. Oh, thank you very much. So look, um, it must be interesting, you know, seeing all these new strange faces coming through the door in normal times, you know, when you can identify people, then they're not covered in masks. But how how do you make that work? You, you said before that, you know, some groups have had dedicated welcomers and people to, to help you sit down, find a table. And that's where I found, you know, a lot of the time that what I feel is a crucial element is missing. Strangers, new people turn up and they just stand there going, what is this and why is nobody talking to me? Yeah, and that's actually, that was something that I wanted to change when I started my group in terms of what I'd observed. So I take on the role of, of, of welcomer. I do have two other people who help me out when I really need a break and they they step up, do the host that night, but it's quite sporadic. Um, so as a welcomer, I will... Um, there's actually a lot of work that goes on before an event. And that's, I think, really the key part is communicating the clear message of what to expect, how to find us in the venue, because a lot of that we're in RSLs, so they can be mazes. Yeah. Um, so I give detailed instructions that I post on the day of the event. I also encourage and comment in the event going, oh, what games are people bringing? I encourage people to pre-organise games, but don't worry if you're new, I'll help you find a game when you arrive. Um, I sometimes get people messaging me and having that two-way communication, that communication line open ahead of the event, I have found has reassured a lot of people who may have otherwise not come because they're a bit nervous or a bit anxious. Um, and I say this as someone who has walked into those rooms and been the only woman there. So I think I do get a high number of women attending because they know there's going to be less, at least one other woman because it's me. <laughs> And um, I, so there's all this pre-work that goes in. It's that communication, that reminder, and that kind of sets um, in a very subtle way the expectation of the behaviour expected from the group. The second bit of work is um, when someone comes in, I will say hello. I, I always have to sit at the desk right at the front of the venue. I will say, hi, what's your name? And I use the Meetup um, app and I will check them in so I keep a track record of who has attended, who hasn't shown up. It's a little bit different post-COVID. Pre-COVID, I took payments at the door to cover venue hire costs. Post-COVID, it's tickets online, which is a little bit easier for me because if a no-show doesn't show up, it's less risk. Yeah. I will then go, oh, have you pre-arranged a game? If I don't recognise their face, I will go, have you pre-arranged a game? Let, if not, let me help you find a game. I think they're about to start one. I think you're going to start that one. I even have people who walk into the venue and say, hey, I've got place for two players in my game. It's a beginner-friendly game. Awesome. Um, and they will know they like, so they'll let me know. So I'll just keep that in my head. It's a lot of indexing. It does mean that I sacrifice some game, some enjoyment in the game I'm playing, or sometimes I have to take on the role of taking those people and playing a game with them. If there's not a game for them to slot into, if I'm already not committed to one. <laughs> um, sometimes I, I go over and go, if it's a only new people at a table together, um, I will go over and go, do you need help with the rules? If not, like if it's a game I don't personally know, I will identify someone else they can ask. So there's always that person who can support them. The other key thing, and this is something that you said, Leon, is your spiel. And that's actually a really important thing because that kind of sets the expectations of the group. So I have a games library that I bring to um, events and it's 
what I can fit in a suitcase. So there's lot, there's actually quite a long list of games, but I can only bring a certain amount. So people will make requests, but otherwise I just fill it up with whatever I can fit in. And so some people will bring their own games and add it to the pile. Um, and other people prefer to keep their games private. Just, just to be a pain, because I'd like to cut you off while you're in the middle of a flow, because that's just the kind of interviewer I am. Um, that suitcase that you mentioned, you're taking it to a game day tomorrow. What are the five games off the top of your head right now that have to be in that suitcase? I'm imagining oh. they're probably still in that suitcase at the moment. Something tells me. They are. So <laughs> um, it, there's a running joke happening at the moment. I've just started up events again. Yep. And there's two guys who come uh, and they've asked for two games. Yep. Every week they get into another game and they've not been able to play them yet. It's right. five tribes, yes. Lords of Waterdeep. Oh, wow. Um, yep. Absolute yep. belting decisions. Yep, and and they're just great for people to just sit down and play. I find the the classic games are the ones I'll bring most often. The ones people know the most are most likely to be familiar with. And I rotate Catan in occasionally, but that doesn't get as yep. much play as it used to. Uh, Pandemic is almost always in there. Um, yep. It's because it's a. I also am limited by box size, so it's about what I can Tetris in. So yes. my favorite games. Uh, Condottery, or however you say that. We've been having a lot of conversation about how to pronounce that lately. Arboretum, which is one of my favourites. We have, um, I generally will put in um, Jaipur just in case there's two players stuck. Um, And that's a really good two-player game that's not too complicated to learn. I will, um, if there's a request, Twilight Struggle got heavy rotation for a while there as a yep. two-player game. And one person was just teaching people after game, after game, after game, and would just oh, keep wow. playing it all night yeah, okay. with different people. Cool. So that was quite popular. But it is mostly those mid to lightweight ones that I try to bring because they're the ones that anyone can grab. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, based off a game that we talked about recently, I think it was actually probably on the last episode, I would probably put it on the end of the show. Uh, Cartographers would be one I'd definitely chuck in there because that's been hitting the table a lot in my gaming group in the last month or two. You'd probably There's only like four pencils, I think, in the base game, but so you'd have to chuck a few extras in there. But that's a game that, again, small size, but I think that'll get played nearly every time because it's one of those things at the end of the night. How many people have we got? 20? Cool. As long as you guys can all see these cards in the middle of the table. Let's rock and or roll. Actually, that's a good idea. I haven't got any rolling rights in the suitcase at the moment, hey. um, but I will have to source some. Um, the other one that you just remind me of is code names. It's perfect for the end of the night. Everyone, everyone loves the code names. I might chuck just one in there soon, to be honest. <laughs> I was going to say solid choice as long as yeah, we wear words as well. Code names or code names pictures? Oh, I have code names in the library. Yeah. But I feel Codenames Pictures is really good for anyone who's um, English as a second language because it allows them to um, interpret based on the pictures, not necessarily the meaning of a word, which I find is it, it unfairly biases the game. Yeah, and it's just one of those things that like Codenames came out and I played it and I was like, this is great, bought it straight away, as is my want. And then I played Codenames Pictures and I went, I never want to play the original code games, Codenames ever again because I get it that, you know, people have to use their brain maybe a little bit more but the simple fact is that the worst part of code names is people looking at words or looking at something going i just can't think of something if you've got a picture there we're all visual people when it comes to those type of things it definitely helps Mm. um yeah back to the opening spiel though yes (laughs) um so it's it's really important because it does the expectation setting of it's almost like a pitch statement for when someone walks into the room this is your expected behavior you don't have to 
explicitly say that, but you'll just say welcome. And that kind of so, so shows them through action and through words, this is a welcoming place. You can talk to me. I am not a scary person on the internet. I am a person here. And if you have a problem, you can come to me. I will, um, and I have gotten out of the habit of doing this post-COVID. This is what a several month break does to me. What I used to do, here are the bathrooms. Here is where you can get food. Here is where you can get water. Here is the games library. You can um, grab any of those games, return it when you're done. If you need help with any of the rules, ask me. I will help you or find someone else who can help you out. And I'll also be, you know, have you prearranged that game, which I mentioned earlier. And that is the rundown. That gets them started in the game. And from that um, opening spiel, they feel welcomed. They feel relieved. If then I see them not going to a table or mingling with anyone to try to find a game, I will stop my game. I will get up. I will walk over. I will have a conversation with them. I'll ask them if they need a hand. And I might semi-forcefully guide them over to a table. <laughs> or everyone Come over here. Yeah. yeah, everyone's a bit shy. So I'll kind of corral them into a group um, and get them started with something. And I find that that's all that's enough. And usually that group or that table is laughing by the end of the night. And it, it does really help, but it does mean there's a lot of self-sacrificing of what I get out of the day myself. But I really enjoy connecting people. That's that's cool. I mean, I, I think, you know, part of the burden of organising these things is you've, you've got to take it for the team and you've, you've got to make sure that, you know, 40 to 60 people are having fun as well as the, the one organiser. But I did want to ask, you know, do you have a sort of a list of cohorts of, of regular gamers who are in on this and are more than happy to, to, you know, be a teacher and be, you know, deliberately leaving a spare seat at the table for, for a random new person to walk in? One of my favourites might be someone you've mentioned on the podcast a few times, mm-hmm. Richard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Richard. Richard B is um, an asset to the community and he's an asset to my gaming group. He always brings those sweet medium weight games um, and he is the most patient teacher. I am not a patient teacher. I've very much fallen out of the habit. Um, he's the most patient, patient teacher and I feel very comfortable giving people to his game um, when he walks in. There's also, um, and they haven't come since COVID, but there was um, someone named Michael and he's, he showed up with his father. It was a father-son um, duo. And they would, they, that was the group that loved their um, Dark Moon. So they would be like, more players, we can take eight. Give us eight. <laughs> in more recent times, there has been a new person coming to the group who's filled some of that role as well. Very welcoming, grabbing new people, chucking them in. If I wanted to throw someone in an 18xx game or a Lacerda, then I have Chris. Um, Chris Day um, is, he's the person who introduced me to 18xx games, which has obviously started a whole thing. And I can, I know that if I give the gamers to him, he will explain, explain the games in the most patient way possible. And since they can be very overwhelming games, if it's a Splotter, a Lacerda, or a 18XS game, Chris is my guy. Lovely. Well, it sounds like you're running a very tight yet fun ship over there. And speaking of ships, we're probably going to talk about a ship in a second. But before <laughs> we do that, when I was first introduced to you or knew about you, it was because of dice. Please tell us how that happened. <laughs> It actually happened by accident at an LFG a few years ago. Um, Hang on, hang on. Sorry, I I do apologise. 
I have to cut you off. Nearly everybody we've had on this show, Garth, that is to do with in the board gaming world of like selling stuff or making a bit of dosh, all of them have fallen ass backwards into it. Every single one of them has said <laughs> it happened by accident or I didn't mean to. And all of a sudden, I'm one of the greatest designers in the world. I accidentally when- bought 10 versions of this Kickstarter game. I had to sell them and now I'm a board game shop. Yeah, we're on this show every week. Well, we were now every fortnight. When are we going to fall backward into this? It's utterly ridiculous. Anyway, Tina, please continue. Um, so in terms of becoming a retailer, that was very deliberate. I I did plan that out and I went to LFG and I happened to chat to um, Charles from um, LFG, Canberra, running his LFG Sydney event. And he actually said, you're thinking about doing this, let's have a chat and gave me his number. And we had a, like a while later, we had a very long phone call and I got, I went into the whole thing with the eyes wide open as a result. And I have a very fondness for um, the board game retailers community. Um, I think in, in Sydney and in Australia, it's, there is some competitiveness, but I think overall people are in it to make the community better. We wouldn't do this if we weren't in it for the community. But I actually started selling um, the retailing because I wanted a space to run my events in. So I was like, I'll start a board game shop and have space so I don't have to hire venues anymore. <laughs> um, well, my friends so can I come did, to me. Exactly. <laughs> so I did kind of fall into that. The The dice thing happened after I'd been a shop for a couple of months and I happened to run into someone um, and I was down at Canberra for CanCon and they said, do you have dice that isn't chess X? And I went, <laughs> I, I, I'm looking into it. And thus a rabbit hole was born. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I have, I mean, I have to admit, I always have been into dice personally. When I first started playing D&D many years ago and I, fourth edition, um, which is not good, um, I grabbed... (laughs) One of the survivors, well done. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I did get to play Minotaur. That was cool. Um, But I, you know, didn't just buy one set of dice. I had four sets of dice. I have significantly more now, but uh, I'm very restrained. Uh, I tend to go in for dice trades now if I want to sort my collection up a bit. But in the business side, it just kind of started. There's a niche that Australia didn't really have this, hadn't tapped into this international community yet. And I I am in the community. So I find that I get a lot of community um, uh, loyalty and, and reward out of being in that, very similar to the board game stuff. Um, because I'm there as part of the community and not just selling to the community, I think that that is probably the most rewarding spot to be into. But yeah, I now am one of the largest dice retailers in Australia with at least the widest range of brands available. I don't know anyone who has more brands, even if they might have more stock. (laughs) Well, look, on that note, we better allow you to do a little bit more self-promotion in (laughs) this space before we move on and start talking about some games. So you've got got your floor, you've got your platform. Where can people look and buy at games, dice? And then also where can they find you for the, the meetups in Sydney? So everything is linked from my webpage, but I'll break them down one by one. So I've got beholdgames.com.au. I have on meetup.com. If you look for Sydney tabletop games, you can find the meetup events. If you go to the Behold Games website, though, if you can't remember the meetup.com site, you can go to events. It will have a list of the crews, the 
the 18xxCon and the meetup events there, as well as a link to the games library you can make requests of. Awesome. Um, and on um, Facebook, just as a community group, I also run the Australian Board Game Geeks Facebook page. Excellent. Well, look, before we finish up and switch the conversations to, to gaming, it'd be remiss of us not to talk about the, the board game cruise. And, you know, it was looking like a cracker. It was going to be the most popular, the biggest, the best organised. And then COVID happened. And now, unfortunately, instead of coming to Tasmania on the cruise, which is what you were going to do, Hopefully everyone's going to be getting their money back. Are there plans though for a bigger and brighter version down the track somewhere? I briefly flirted with an idea of doing the garn, but I had asked a couple of people and they were like, no, there's just not enough to do on it. No. Apart from gaming, if all you want to do is gaming. But I think the cruise is still the way to go. In my mind, I think I'll, I'll assess how things look early next year and either plan for the end of next year, beginning of the year after, or the December, the year following, December, January. I'm going to try to keep it in that time frame to allow for teachers and students to attend as well um, without having to really cut into, um, you know, having to worry about exams and everything else that goes on in their lives. And I think they have it hard enough as <laughs> is. And um, I'm hoping that over the Christmas, between Christmas and New Year or Christmas to Australia Day, might even lead nicely into a CanCon in the future. Um, you know, do a like trip to Sydney, drive to Canberra would be great. We'll see how that goes. I also toyed with the idea of doing like a weekend hotel away, but I think it's a little, I think it, it, people are still very cautious and I'm seeing that in the meetup group as well. People are still cautious about going out to public events. So I'm happy to wait. I'm taking a chance to take a break from organising stuff. My 18XXCon did go ahead though, but it was a very cut down version. I was looking at getting, I think, up to 50 attendees and um, had to cancel, refund tickets, rebooked a smaller venue and got about 20 to 30. Appropriately spaced out and um, everything else and masks <laughs> and in a smaller non-RSL venue. But I, I still think the crew, people are going to be very wary of cruise lines for a while yet. I'm happy to give it a little bit more time for people to build up confidence. Yeah. I think that's a good idea. Well, look, we're going to take a little break and then we're going to come back and we're all going to go to a fun fair. And uh, hopefully, Leon, yeah. yours won't be horrible and last and have all those incomplete blueprints. So oh, we're going a to shocker. take a little break and we'll be back to talk about the latest game from Good Games Publishing, where the dice men cometh and we'll be back in a minute. I'm Matthew Lee from The Campaigner, and I listen to the world's best podcast. And I also listen to The Dice Men Cometh. And there you go. That was something with somebody with The Dice Men Cometh, live and exclusive from our respective games rooms over the internet. And Leon, you get yes. to talk to us about the newest game from Good Games Publishing. Way! Yay! And it is fun because it is fun fair. Now, this is going to be a little bit different than how we normally do this because this is a game that's a bit... It's near and dear to the heart of nearly everyone in Australia because we've all seen Funfair and Unfair at conventions for about the last five years constantly because of its um, designer, um, Joel Finch. He's always there. He's always testing the games out. He's always testing out new expansions. So that's where we've played this game majority. We all have copies at home because we like at least Unfair. We'll find out about Funfair in a second. 
But we normally just play this at conventions and test out new stuff. So it's going to be slightly different, but it's mainly going to be a comparison and our thoughts on the new one. But a quick little elevator pitch rundown. What are these games? And the short answer is they are board games about building the best theme park, which you've got to think, how did it take somebody so long to make one of these and make a good one? Well, I don't know the answer to that, but all I know is it took an Australian to do it. So one in the plus column for the good guys, as far as I'm concerned there. (laughs) So yeah, so in the game, it is mainly a it is a hand management, card buying, kind of money management style game. The unfair version is more of a medium weight, whereas the newer version is a bit more lightweight. But it looks amazing. The, the art style is the same for both versions of this game. And it is the 10 on 10 for pretty much design when it comes to the look of the cards and the look of the board and the iconography and stuff like that. They've kept all that. They've just changed a few different bibs and bobs. Um, Tina, you are in the same boat as us, I'm assuming, where you've played this multiple times at conventions, some that you've probably organised, I'm guessing. Uh, hilariously, I've never got, until recently, I never got unfair to the table. Wow. Wow. So I played it today with a friend and they might not ever talk to me again. <laughs> <laughs> yep. We've had similar experiences with that. <laughs> we played we played the original unfair, I think, at a PAX, like, it must have been five years ago by this point. And all Joel told us was he said, I'm not going to tell you guys the exact what's going to happen, but just need us to say that about halfway through the game, it's going to get a bit punchy. And we were just like, ooh, ooh, we like punchy. But we were not prepared for, excuse me, you've done what now? Yes. (laughs) You've destroyed half of what I've been working on the entire game? All my money? Oh, it's gone. Oh, good. (laughs) That's what I needed. But anyway, I digress. So, so let's talk about Funfair and Slash Unfair. Both of the games are recommended for ages 14 up, but the new version Funfair, they say anywhere from, say, 10 up, like, for instance, Garth, your kids, um, probably both of them, I think, would be have no hassle with this whatsoever. I agree. I was, I was playing it again recently, Leon. We played yep. it yesterday. And that game, we played it in about an hour and I just yeah. thought this is absolutely the speed for my kids to be able to do and the theme would suck them in. So yes, absolutely, yeah. this will hit the table with the kids. Yeah, because it says here 15 minutes per player, whereas Unfair was 25 minutes per player. I think that's pretty much bang on. Uh, Unfair did take a little bit more learning and a little bit more. And that's only because it has a few different extra phases in it. So when I actually talk about the rules of the game, I'll kind of mention one of those that happened. Uh, Funfair is... Uh, two to four players unfair was two to five players they've got very similar components like i said very similar art style the rounds in the game there's six rounds in the new fun fair there's eight rounds in the in the old unfair which makes perfect sense because this game is obviously you know it's a bit newer it's a bit more slimmed down whereas the other one it's a bit heavier you've got more decisions because you do want to do more stuff but the crux of it is still going to be basically the same and that is you're going to be trying to build the best theme park and you're going to be doing that by taking actions on your turn there'll be three each round four once you build your big showstopper super ride but three is normally where you're living at and what you're going to be doing is very simple things like collecting a tiny bit of money if you've got nothing else you can do getting random cards from the top of the deck if not you're going to be trying to play cards from your hand or from the pile in the middle of the table you're going to be, it's pretty much building your park. You're going to be building attractions. You're going to be building big roller coasters and other attraction rides, things like theatres, things like food places. And you're going to be putting different themes on them. I'll get to the themes in a minute because the themes in these games are very, very important. 
And you're going to be doing that, yeah, like I said, by playing different cards and making them the best that you possibly can. You're going to be hiring staff to make your park run more efficient. And they do things like saying, you know, if you've got more of thrill rides in your park, this staff member will help drum up some extra cash for you. Things of that nature. Both of the games are very similar in that. They also start with a little event at the start of each round. In Unfair, the event uh, cards that you can have in your hand and you can play them, which can do bad stuff to your friends and all benefit you. Whereas in the new Fun Fair, it's just an open event that everybody can do and it benefits pretty much everybody on the table. Yeah, so like I said, it slimmed it down quite a bit, which is very, very nice. <laughs> so as you're playing... Uh, sorry to interrupt, Leon. I just think that, um, yeah, look, when, fun, when, when Unfair came out, it was in our wheelhouse. It was a Dice Men Cometh favourite game because we love being mean to each other. We love doing that around the table and doing it in the, the safety of the board game rules. But a lot of people didn't like it because it was ruthless yeah. in times and it was heartbreaking and soul-destroying. And thankfully, Funfair isn't, yeah. if that's an element of unfair that you didn't Yeah, that's like. the thing is that you look at this game and you look at the art style and you look at the board and it's very colourful. It looks exactly what you would want a game about building an awesome theme park to look like. So from that art style and design style, it is 10 on 10. But yeah, when it came down to the unfair version where you could play event cards and like shut entire rides down in somebody's park that they've been spending so many turns on and things like that. And so many points could be half the points they're going to get at the end of the game could be this one ride and you just put in like a health inspector and shut it down. It's, it's a bitter pill to swallow. And I can't remember what the name of the game was, but Garth, we played a game. I think it was a small Kickstarter game a couple of years ago. It was about um, running competitive food trucks and that game, oh, yeah. very colorful art, very small box, but it was really rather complicated and a bit, a lot more heavier than what it looked. And as I said, when we played it at the pub, it really put me off from nearly the second we started it because I thought I looked at the box and I went, you know, running food trucks. That looks cool. That's a cool idea. We're at the pub. This seems like a cool idea. But then I got into a game that wasn't exactly heavy Euro, you know, style, but it was a lot heavier. It was very glory to Romish because the cards could do uh, uh, that. I was about yeah, to say, cards. yeah. So that was food truck champion and it yeah. was, Glory to Rome, Mott and I, that, you know, Carl Chuddock kind of game where, um, yeah, it looked like it should have been a 30 minute game and it was really, yeah. it really was like a two hour game that was more complicated. And that really put a massively bad taste in our mouth. And I think our review reflected that when we talked about it. But Unfair is <laughs> not that bad. Unfair is completely fine because Unfair is a good game. But I can see how some people had played Unfair and gone, ooh, that's a bit iffish. Unfair, so yes. to say. I mean, it does say it on the yeah. box, guys. But you don't see that. Like I said, you see literally what you see. You see the art style. You see building a theme park. You see the themes, which I said before. Both of these games, are. there's lots of different themes you can build your parks. In uh, the new Fun Fair, there is four. They're all a part of one collective deck that everyone's kind of pulling from. In the original Unfair, there were six in the base game. There was four in an expansion that came out a year later. And you mix and match. When you start playing that game, you go, we're going to play with the pirate deck and the alien deck and the cowboy deck and the dinosaurs. In the new Funfair, it's just four different themes that are in that deck. And those four different themes are pirate, jungle, fairies, and robots. Thank you very much, Garth. So you're going to be putting different themes on different rides and they give you extra points and things like that nature. And you'll be going to be going along. And like I said, in the new fun fair, you've got six rounds. You could do three or four actions every round. You're going to do a cleanup at the end where you get your money. And then at the end of it, you're going to score points 
based off the little card you've got in front of you that says like, you know, the big rides give you lots of different points and the way you've built your park, but it's over really, really quickly. And yeah, that's pretty much it. It is. Well, that's the thing. When you play it over six rounds and you're only getting three round, three actions per round, you can play this game in 18 rounds, 18 yeah. turns. And it is really highlights that every single action you take is critical to not coming last. And thankfully, it is a nicer version. It is, look, it's, it is in some ways a solo tableau builder because there is very little interaction within each yeah. park. And if it was a longer game, I would be critical of that. But because you can play this, like we we could sit down, the three of us, and probably bang it out in about 30 to 40 minutes Absolutely. now without too much hassle at all. But yeah, you're, you're really just focusing on your, your own optimization. And it's, it is really generous. So your, your super mega attraction that starts the game costing 20 bucks every round, it gets $5 cheaper because you've got investors to come around. And, and that's fantastic because at, at some point during the game, it'll be free and you'll get a fourth action every single round. The staff, as you say, Leon, they can offer bonuses during the course of the game where they might give you extra income or they might just give you extra victory points at the end or a combination thereof. But it is all about building those attractions, the food outlets, the theatres, the everything, and getting as many icons on each of those particular attractions to maximise your points. Now, I've only played it twice, played it twice within the last few days, and my scores both times have been really, really similar. They've been 150, 160 points. The winner has got about 15 to 20 points more than that, which is really annoying, but that's okay. The one thing I am a little bit concerned about is the award deck. And this is the small deck. You shuffle it and you flip over one card at the start of the game. And that's going to be an end game bonus for the park that does something the best. It might have the most icons or it might be the one that has the least star value or it might be something else. And they're usually worth about 15 points. But in both games, that has been the difference between coming first and coming second or third. It's it's a massive part of the game that cannot be underrated. Yeah. But it's also one of those things, as you said, since the game is rather quick, that it's not that big a deal. But it's kind of annoying that, yeah, if everyone is even, it just come down to the one thing of, oh, you got one more icon on that thing, then you win. It's, it's good. It's got its pros and it's got its cons. So I'm not 100% sure. I'm on the pro side of that argument um, with the any game that gives people a goal, whether common or private, I find if you're new to the game, it gives you something to aim for. It gives you that, what do I do when I've got a thousand options or five cards in my hand to pick from? <laughs> it's, oh, I know, I'll do the thing that lets me do that. And it does help people enter a game and get a game started and start to develop a strategy, even if, like me, about two turns in they go i'm never going to achieve that it's possible <laughs> yeah see for me i would i would agree with you if it wasn't for the blueprint cards so the the fact mm. that the blueprint cards are there and they are your own private goals so as one of the actions you can take two blueprint cards from a relatively decent sized deck and you can choose to keep zero or one of those cards now they offer extra points they are easy or medium or difficult in terms of the complexity and what you've got to do but they give you end game bonus points for completing a thing and it might be have a thrill ride which has a guest services and a quality upgrade and if you do that you get an additional 10 or 15 points the bottom half of the blueprint card gives you some bonus points if you achieve the bit at the top as well so i'm i'm 
I love the blueprint cards because they do make or break the game and you need to be in the blueprint race to win the mm -hmm. game. That's where my hesitation is about the award deck. I just don't know whether it's actually needed because the two games I've played, it has decided who's won. That's a fair point. I think it's probably for people that play it for the first time or even younger people. It just gives them something to aim for. But as you said, those blueprints give you something to aim for as well. So it's kind of sits in both parks. But you could very easily say, we're just not going to use that deck. And it really wouldn't affect the game nearly at all. Absolutely. So you could kind of play it either which way. Um, I just want to quickly, before I throw to you guys about your thoughts about both these games, I want to mention mine because I'm slightly conflicted. I will give you the positives of both for a start. It looks awesome. The theme is awesome. The art is awesome. It's designed really well. This is both unfair and funfair I'm talking about at the moment. Um, unfair is a bit more of a medium weight game where and it has got that kind of screw you over stuff, which is stuff that we're big fans of. The funfair, it is a bit more streamlined. It is a bit quicker. It takes out that element. So that is also, both of those things are positive. So this is a game that I could easily recommend to somebody that is a you know a board gamer, depending on what style they are, I could recommend unfair to them or funfair to them quite happily. That being said, I have issues with both of the games. With unfair, it can be, I know it's in the name, ha 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 ha, but it can, <laughs> some of those things that happen to you can be absolutely brutal. Also, the game, for what it looks like, again, it's got the lovely and colorful art style. It's a tiny bit more complicated than what, I don't know if it necessarily, I don't want to say than it needs to be because I think it's probably, it needs to be, that's fine. But in my head, when I see it on my shelf and people are around and I go, we've got two hours to kill, I've not pulled it out as opposed to some others because in my head I go, it's going to be a bit harder to teach than what I think it should be because it's a little bit more complicated than that. And on top of the fact that, yes, I said it can be a bit nasty, but you've got those modular decks where you can build to lots of different kinds of styles of play, which is nice. Whereas Funfair... My negative with that is what Garth said. And it's one of those things that I think it will be the number one negative that anybody says about Funfair is that there is very little, if pretty much no player interaction at all. The only player interaction you have is the board in the middle where you can take cards from to put in your hand or build instantly if somebody takes one that you want. That's pretty much nearly where the interaction completely ends there. So the reason why I want to talk about it is because... If I have a game in my collection, Garth will attest to this. If I have a game in my collection that I look at and I go, no, not now. I've got something else that scratches that itches instead, or I will do something else. Normally I get rid of that game. And because of having now Funfair and Unfair, I kind of look at it and go, both of them I have issues with. And I don't want this to sound coming across as, oh, I'm only keeping them because I know the guy who designed them and it's an Australian game. That's not true at all. I want to keep both of them because the positives outweigh the negatives. Even though when I look at them, I kind of think, oh, that negative does kind of niggle me. But I want, <laughs> but I want to keep it. But whereas, like I so I've said to Garth and people that have listened to this show from the start will know that normally those kind of games I just get rid of and then I don't think twice about. And I did consider that after playing both of these games. I looked at them and go, do I want to legitimately keep them in my collection? And I've looked at them and gone, I have issues with them but I still do want to keep them. I do want to give them to the table, even though I know not heaps of player interaction or I need to learn this a bit better because it's a little bit more complicated than I thought. So I just thought that was an interesting juxtaposition, mainly in my head, more than anybody else's. Wow. And you got to use a big word like juxtaposition. Oh, I'm smart. That's I'm amazing. smart as in stuff, Garth. Word of the day calendar, Leon? Or supply. 
It could have been word of the day toilet paper right. could possibly. Anyway. <laughs> Tina, what are your thoughts on, we'll, we'll start with Funfair and, and obviously Unfair as well. So I had the fortune of Kim from Good Games Publishing um, teaching me Funfair, Beautiful. which took a little bit of the, of the opening the rule book, figuring everything out out of it. Um, but having looked at the rule book since on my own, it's a much more approachable game. I personally really like the solo multiplayer style of games. One of my favourite games is Race for the Galaxy, mm -hmm. um, which is solo multiplayer. You have a minimal interaction. This fits into that niche for me. I really, really enjoyed Funfair. Unfair, I would have to pick and choose the people I played it with. Yeah. Um, I would have to make sure I played it with the people who could be not too vengeful, but a little bit vengeful because it's fun. <laughs> when I disable their rides in the last round of the game um, during an event, like I did today. <laughs> we'll see if they continue to speak to me. Um, but I, I really do feel that out of the two, um, Funfair will get to the table more for my style of play and my group because it is just a pleasant game to build your little engine. Um, and that's the type of game I like. But I was first introduced to Unfair by couples who love that cutthroat aspect to it. They love that high interaction. Yeah, well, when we were talked to Kim a couple of months ago, he said that the, he does know people that have played Unfair, I think more than Joel, which is insane to say. There are some people that have played Unfair like hundreds of times. So, 300 times he told yeah, me. Yeah, so that is yep. kind of crazy. But um, yeah, that's the thing is that I kind of agree with you that I think Funfair is much more likely to get to the table because of the simplicity and the, and the streamline of it. That being said because of the modular different uh, abilities in Unfair, and I like that aspect of kind of the more interaction. Unfair is the one I would more like to get to the table. And I think this is where my confliction in my head goes. I look at Funfair and I go, I could get that to the table. No, oh, but I think I'd rather get Unfair. And then I go, no, oh, but maybe is it going to work? Is it, oh, it's so confusing. Leon doesn't know what to do. Garth, tell Leon what to do. Oh, look, I definitely think there's room in the, in the library for sure. both. Very I true. think unfair, sorry, I think funfair is a start of the night or an end of the night kind of game. It fills in that 45 minutes to an hour when you just want to warm yourself up. You want to get your gaming brain on or you want to chill out at the end of the night after playing something a bit heavier. Whereas I think unfair is, is the, you know, it's the meat in the gaming sandwich if you're having a gaming night because you are going to be potentially brain burned and emotionally exhausted or ruined at the end of an unfair game if you've got the safe space and the right people all playing it for the right reasons in the right way that it's intended. I love those games. I have a great time and I have been brutally, horribly destroyed from unfair more times than not, but that's okay because I expect that from my friends and I certainly give as good as I take. I think... You know, the easy way to, to describe it is that Funfair is the kids' game and, and Unfair is the adults' game, as long as you've got the right consenting adults playing the game. Otherwise, you play the kids' game, and that's totally fine. Yep. So that's my thoughts. I, I definitely will keep my um, keep Funfair. I will play it with my children, who are 10 and uh, almost 13. And I also think I could play it as a gateway game to, to newer gamers. So, you know, thinking about what Tina's going through, that's putting Funfair in the suitcase is probably not a bad option. And actually, um, Funfair is now in the suitcase. Yay! You asked me what was in the suitcase. Kim donated a copy to the games library. Um, I think 
enough people know how to play it. I can it comp it fits in that niche of it's quick, easy to learn. It's a game that people can um, teach each other almost out of the rules. Uh, and that's where its bonus is for me. Yeah. And we talked before about how, you know, getting people into the hobby to different style of games. At the end of the day, Funfair is a beautiful gateway game to Unfair, which, and, oh, and yeah. you can't, you can't go wrong with that. So yeah, it makes perfect sense. Well, there you go. Three Australians say that Australian made and designed games are good. Who'd have thunk it? Another bombshell, yeah, another bombshell yet again for another Fortnite, Garthy boy. I know. Well, look, it's been an amazing episode. It's been fantastic to have Tina on. Thank you very much for live coming in from your particular bedroom, lounge room, games room in Sydney. Leon, it's almost Christmas, believe it or not. We are getting very close to the end of this year. And, you know, we're going to have a couple more episodes before we see out what has been horrendous 2020. Who knows what the future brings. There's eh? only going to be one more episode for people after this one comes out and it's... It's going to be a good one, and then the next couple after that are going to be a bit special as well. But yeah, it's it's been an interesting year to say the least, and let's <laughs> and let's never speak of it again. But um, yes, Tina, thank you very very much for joining us, and people should go and give you lots of money as they should with our sponsor LFG, which we've probably only just mentioned now. But they did change Tina's life, so you know, it's pretty impressive. Should give them money as well. So yes, Tina, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Leon and Garth. Wonderful. Well, we are over and out for another week. Thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm. We are at Dice Men Cometh on all the social things. So please just make sure you follow. I won't say like and subscribe because we're not on YouTube very much. Tina, quick shout out. What are your things again, just for people to buy money, give you exchange goods and services for things? Beholdgames.com.au. There you go. Wonderful. Your one-stop shop for all your dice and all your podcasting needs. What more do you want? Friends love happiness and money. Yeah, that's probably a fair point as well. Well, you go enjoy those things. And as always, play lots of games and love the people that you love and stay safe. See you all later. Bye. This has been an edit of The Dice Men Cometh from Edge Radio 99.3 FM, Hobart's independent youth station. Find us on Facebook and edgeradio.org.au.